0: Thanks so much for your listenership and support. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew, and I'm so pleased you've joined me tonight and taken this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading The Yosemite, by John Muir, Part 8, Flowers and Feathers. We will journey through the serene world of the valley, where gentle birdsong intertwines with fragrant blossoms, all amidst the tranquil surroundings of the rocky terrain. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cosy. Take a deep, relaxing breath and settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in. For a peaceful night's sleep, the flowers. Yosemite was all one glorious flower garden, before plows and scythes and trampling, biting horses came to make its wide open spaces look like farmers' pasture fields. Nevertheless, countless flowers still bloom every year in glorious profusion on grand talus slopes, wall benches and tablets and in all the fine, cool side canyons up to the rim of the valley and beyond, higher and higher to the summits of the peaks. Even on the open floor and in easily reached side nooks, many common flowering plants have survived and still make a brave show in spring and early summer. Among these, we may mention tall anethras, Penstemon lutea, and P. Douglasii, with fine blue red flowers, Spragia, Scarlet Sorschnaria, with its curious radiant rosettes characteristic of sandy flats, mimulus, Ornanus, Blue and White Violets, Geranium, Columbine, Erythria. Larkspur, Colomia, Drapiera, Gilius, Helleniums, Bahia, Goldenrods, Daisies, Honeysuckle, Hetura, Bolandra, Saxifrages, Gentians. In cool canyon nooks and on clouds rest, and the base of Star King Dome. You may find Primula suffrutensens, the only wild primrose discovered in California, and the only known shrubbery species in the genus. And there are several fine orchids, habanaria, and Cypripendium, the latter very rare, once common in the valley, near the foot of Glacier Point, and in a bog on the rim of the valley, near a place called Gentry Station now abandoned. It is a very beautiful species, the large oval lip white, delicately veined with purple, the other petals and sepals purple, strap-shaped, and elegantly curled and twisted. Of the lily family, Fritillaria, Similicina, Chlorogallum, and several fine species of brodiae, ethereal Spear, and other less prized are common. The favorite calicortus, or Mariposa Lily, a unique genus of many species, something like the Tulip of Europe, but far finer. Most of them grow on the warm foothills below the valley, but two charming species, C. Caruleus and C. Nudus dwell in the springy places on the Wawana Road, a few miles beyond the brink of the walls. The snow plant, Sarcodes sanguinea, is more admired by tourists than any other in California. It is red, fleshy, and watery, and looks like a gigantic asparagus shoot. Soon after the snow is off the round, it rises through the dead needles and hummus in the pine and fir woods like a bright glowing pillar of fire. In a week or so, it grows to a height of eight or twelve inches, with a diameter of an inch and a half or two inches. Then its long fringe bracts curl aside allowing the twenty or thirty-five lobe, bell-shaped flowers to open and look straight out from the axis. It is said to grow up through the snow. On the contrary, it always waits until the ground is warm, though with other early flowers it is occasionally buried or half-buried for a day or two by spring storms. The entire plant, Flowers, bracts, stem, scales, and roots is fiery red. Its colour could appeal to one's blood. Nevertheless, it is a singularly cold and unsympathetic plant. Everybody admires it as a wonderful curiosity, but nobody loves it as lilies, violets, roses, daisies are loved. Without fragrance, it stands beneath the pines and firs, lonely and silent, as if unacquainted with any other plant in the world, never moving in the wildest storms, rigid as if lifeless, though covered with beautiful rosy flowers. By far the most delightful and fragrant of the valley flowers is the Washington Lily, white. Moderate in size, with from 3 to 10 flowered racemes. I found one specimen in the lower end of the valley, at the foot of the Winona grade, that was 8 feet high, the raceme 2 feet long, with 52 flowers, 15 of them open. The others had faded or were still in the bud. This famous lily is distributed over the sunny portions of the sugar pine woods, never in large meadow garden companies like the large and small tiger lilies, Pardalinum and Parvum, but widely scattered, standing up to the waist in dense Cenothus and Manzanita chaparral, waving its lovely flowers above the blooming wilderness of the brush, and giving their fragrance to the breeze. It is now becoming scarce in the most accessible parts of its range, on account of the high price paid for its bulbs by gardeners, through whom it has been distributed far and wide over the flower-loving world. For, on account of its pure color and delicate, delightful fragrance, all lily lovers at once adopted it as a favourite. The principal shrubs are Manzanita and Cenothus, several species of each Azalea, Rubus nutcanus, Briar rose, Choke cherry Philadelphus, Calacanthus, Garaya, Ramnus, etc. The Manzanita never fails to attract particular attention. The species common in the valley is usually about six or seven feet high, round-headed with innumerable branches, red or chocolate-colored bark, pale green leaves set on edge, and a rich profusion of small, pink, narrow-throated, urn-shaped flowers like those of our butters, The knotty, crooked, angular branches are about as rigid as bones, and the red bark is so thin and smooth on both trunk and branches, they look as if they had been peeled and polished and painted. In the spring, large areas on the mountain, up to a height of eight or nine thousand feet, are brightened with the rosy flowers and in autumn with their red fruit. The pleasantly acidic berries, about the size of peas, look like little apples, and a hungry mountaineer is glad to eat them, though half their bulk is made up of hard seeds. Bears, coyotes, foxes, birds, and other mountain people live on them for weeks and months. The different species of cenethus, usually associated with manzanita, are flowery fragrant and altogether delightful shrubs, growing in glorious abundance, not only in the valley, but high up in the forest on sunny or half-shaded ground. In the sugar pine woods, the most beautiful species is C. intergerimus, often called Californian Lilac or Deer Brush. It is 5 or 6 feet high, with slender branches, glossy foliage, and abundance of blue flowers in close, showy panicles. Two species, C. prostratus and C. procumbens, spread smooth blue-flowered mats and rugs beneath the pines, and offer fine beds to tired mountaineers. The commonest species, C. cordulatus, is most common in the silver-fir woods. It is white-flowered and thorny, and makes dense thickets of tangled chaparral, difficult to wade through or to walk over but it is pressed flat every winter by 10 or 15 feet of snow. The western azalea makes glorious beds of bloom along the river bank and meadows. In the valley, it is from two to five feet high, has fine green leaves, mostly hidden beneath its rich profusion of large, fragrant white and yellow flowers which are in their prime in June, July, and August, according to the elevation, ranging from 3,000 to 6,000 feet. Near the azalea-bordered streams, the small, wild rose, resembling R. Blanda, makes large thickets deliciously fragrant, especially on a dewy morning and after showers. Not far from these azalea and rose gardens, Rubus nutcanus covers the ground with broad, soft, velvety leaves and pure white flowers as large as those of its neighbor and relative, the rose, and much finer in texture, followed at the end of summer by soft red berries good for everybody. This is the commonest and most beautiful of the whole blessed, flowery, fruity rubus genus. There are a great many interesting ferns in the valley and about it. Naturally enough, the greater number are rock ferns. Pilea, Chelianthus, Polypodium, Andiantum, Woodsia, Cryptogrammae. Etc., with small tufted fronds lining cool glens and fringing the seams of the cliffs. The most important of the larger species are Woodwardia, Aspidium, Asplenium, and, above all, the common terrace. Woodwardia radicans is a superb, broad-shouldered fern five to eight feet in height, growing in vase-shaped clumps where tile ground is nearly level and on some of the benches of the north wall of the valley, where it is watered by a broad, trickling stream. It thatches the sloping rocks, frond-overlapping frond like roof shingles. The broad-fronded, hardy terrace Aquilina The commonest of ferns covers large areas on the floor of the valley. No other fern does so much for the color glory of autumn, with its browns and reds and yellows, even after lying dead beneath the snow all winter. It spreads a rich brown mantle over the desolate ground in the spring before the grass has sprouted and at the first touch of sun heat, its young fronds come rearing up, full of faith and hope, through the midst of the last year's ruins. Of the five species of Pelea, Pea Brewery is the hardiest as to enduring high altitudes and stormy weather, and at the same time, it is the most fragile of the genus. It grows in dense tufts in the clefts of storm-beaten rocks, high up on the mountainside of the very edge of the fern line. It is a handsome little fern, about four or five inches high, has pale green pinnate fronds and shining bronze-coloured stalks about as brittle as glass. Its companions on the lower part of its range are Cryptogramma aristocoides and Phagateris alpestris, the latter with soft, delicate fronds, not in the least like those of rock fern, though it grows on the rocks where the snow lies longest. Pilea brigesi, with blue-green, narrow, simple pinnate fronds, is about the same size as brewery and ranks next to it as a mountaineer, growing in fissures, wet or dry, and around the edges of boulders that are resting on glacier pavements, with no fissures whatsoever. About a thousand feet lower, we find the smaller, more abundant, P. Densa, on ledges and boulder-strewn, fissured pavements, watered until late in summer, from cosy currents derived from lingering snowbanks. It is, or rather was, extremely abundant between the foot of the Nevada and the head of the Vernal Fall, but visitors with great industry have dug out almost every route so that now one has to scramble in out-of-the-way places to find it. The three species of Chelantes in the valley, C. californica, C. gracilima, and myrophila, with beautiful two pinnate fronds, an inch to five inches long, adorn the stupendous walls, however dry and sheer. The exceedingly delicate californica is so rare that I have found it only once, the others are abundant and are sometimes accompanied by the little gold fern, Gymnogramme triangularis, and rarely by the curious little Botrychium simplex, some of them less than an inch high. The finest of all the rock ferns is Adiantum pedatum, lover of waterfalls and the finest spray of dust. The homes it loves best are overleaning, cave like hollows beside the larger falls where it can wet its fingers with their dewy spray. Many of these moss lined chambers contain thousands of these delightful ferns, clinging to mossy walls by the slightest hold, reaching out their delicate finger fronds on dark, shining stalks sensitive and tremulous, throbbing in unison with every movement and tone of the falling water, moving each division of the frond separately at times, as if fingering the music. May and June are the main bloom months of the year. Both the flowers and falls are then at their best. By the first of August, the midsummer glories of the valley are past their prime. The young birds are then out of their nests. Most of the plants have gone to seed. Berries are ripe. Autumn tints begin to kindle, burn over meadow and grove, and a soft mellow haze in the morning sunbeams heralds the approach of the summer. The shallow river is now at rest, its flood work done. It is now but little more than a series of pools united by trickling, whispering currents that steal softly over brown pebbles and sand with scarce an audible murmur. Each pool has a character of its own, and though they are nearly currentless, the night air and tree shadows keep them cool. Their shores curve in and out in bay and promontory, giving the appearance of a miniature lake, their banks in most places embossed with briar and azalea, sedge and grass and fern, and above these in their glory of autumn colours a mingled growth of alder, willow, dogwood, and balm of Gilead mellow sunshine overhead, cool shadows beneath, light filtered and strained in passing through ripe leaves, like that which passes through coloured windows. The surface of the water is stirred, perhaps, by whirling water beetles or some startled trout seeking shelter beneath fallen logs or roots. The falls, too, are quiet, no winds stir, and the whole valley floor is a mosaic of greens and purples, yellows and reds. Even the rocks seem strangely soft and mellow, as if they too had ripened. The birds The songs of the Yosemite winds and waterfalls are delightfully enriched with birdsong, especially in the nesting time of spring and early summer. The most familiar and best known of all is the common robin, who may be seen every day hopping about briskly on the meadows and uttering his cheery, enlivening call. The black-headed grosbeak Two is here, with the bullock oriole and western tanager, brown song sparrow, hermit thrush, the purple finch, a fine singer, with head and throat of a rosy red hue. Several species of warblers and vireos, kinglets, flycatchers, etc., But the most wonderful singer of all the birds is the water ouzel, that dives into foaming rapids and feeds at the bottom, holding on its wonderful way, living a charmed life. Several species of hummingbirds are always to be seen, darting and buzzing among the showing flowers. The little red-bellied nuthatches The chickadees, the little brown creepers, threading the furrows of the bark of the pines, searching for food in the crevices. The large Stella's jay makes merry in the pine tops, flocks of beautiful green swallows skim over the streams, and the noisy Clark's crow may oftentimes be seen on the highest points around the valley and in the deep woods beyond the walls, you may frequently hear and see the dusky grouse and the pelleted woodpecker, or woodcock, almost as large as a pigeon. The junco, or snowbird, builds its nest on the floor of the valley, among the ferns. Several species of sparrow are common, and the beautiful lazuli-banting, a common bird in the underbrush, flitting about the azalea and cenatus bushes, and enlivening the groves with his brilliant colour, and on gravelly bars, the spotted sandpiper is sometimes seen. Many woodpeckers dwell in the valley, the familiar flicker, the Harris woodpecker, and the species that so busily stores up acorns in the thick bark of the yellow pines. The short, cold days of winter are also sweetened with the music and hopeful chatter of a considerable number of birds. No cheerier choir ever sang in snow. First and best of all is the Water oozel, a dainty, dusky little bird about the size of a robin that sings in sweet, fluty song all winter and all summer in storms and calms, sunshine and snow, haunting the rapids and waterfalls with marvelous constancy, building his nest in the cleft of a rock bathed in spray. He is not web-footed, yet he dives fearlessly into foaming rapids, seeming to take the greater delight the more boisterous the stream, always as cheerful and calm, as any linnet in a grove. All his gestures, as he flits about amid the loud uproar of the falls, bespeak the utmost simplicity and confidence. Bird and stream, one and inseparable. What a pair, yet they are well-related. A finer bloom than the foam bell is an eddy pool in this little bird we may miss the meaning of the loud, resounding torrent, but the flute-like voice of the bird, only love is in it. A few robins, belated on their way down from the upper meadows, linger in the valley and make out to spend the winter in comparative comfort, feeding on the mistletoe berries that grow on the oaks. In the depths of the greater forest, on the high meadows, in the severest altitudes, they seem as much at home as in the fields and orchards about the busy habitations of man, ascending the sierra as the snow melts, following the green footsteps of spring, until in July or August, the highest glacier meadows are reached on the summit of the range, Then, after the short summer is over, and their work in cheering and sweetening these lofty wilds is done, they gradually make their way down again in accord with the weather, keeping below the snowstorms, lingering here and there to feed on huckleberries and frost-knit wild cherries growing on the upper slopes. Thence down to the vineyards and orchards of the lowlands to spend the winter, entering the gardens of the great towns as well as parks and fields where the blessed wanderers are too often slaughtered for food. Surely a bad use to put so fine a musician to? Better make stove wood of pianos to feed the kitchen fire. The kingfisher winters in the valley, and the flicker and, of course, the carpenter woodpecker that lays up large stores of acorns in the bark of trees, wrens also, with a few brown and grey linnets, and flocks of the arctic bluebird, making lively pictures among the snow-laden mistletoe bushes. Flocks of pigeons are often seen, and about six species of duck, as the river is never wholly frozen over. Among these are the mallard and the beautiful wood duck, now less common on account of being so often shot at. Flocks of wandering geese used to visit the valley in March and April, and perhaps do so still, driven down by hunger stress of weather while on their way across the range. When pursued by the hunters, I frequently have seen them try to fly over the wall of Lee Valley until tired out and compelled to re Yosemite magnitudes seem to be as deceptive to geese as to men, for after circling to a considerable height and forming regular, harrow shaped ranks, they would suddenly find themselves in danger of being dashed against the face of the cliff, much nearer the bottom than the top. Then turning in confusion, with loud screams, they would try again and again, until exhausted and compelled to descend. I have occasionally observed large flocks on their travels crossing the summits of the range at a height of 12,000 to 13,000 feet above the level of the sea, and even in so rare an atmosphere, they seemed to have sustained themselves without extra effort. Strong, however, as they are of wind and wing, they cannot fly over Yosemite walls starting from the bottom. A pair of golden eagles have lived in the valley ever since I first visited it, hunting all winter along the northern cliffs and down the river canyon. Their nest is on a ledge of the cliff over which pours the Nevada Fall. Perched on the top of a dead spar, They were always interested observers of the geese when they were being shot at. I once noticed one of the geese compelled to leave the flock on account of being sorely wounded, although it still seemed to fly pretty well. Immediately, the eagles pursued it and no doubt struck it down, although I did not see the result of the hunt. Anyhow. It flew past me up the valley, closely pursued. One wild, stormy winter morning, after five feet of snow had fallen on the floor of the valley, and the flying flakes driven by a strong wind still thickened the air, making darkness like the approach of night, I sailed forth to see what I might learn and enjoy. It was impossible to go very far without the aid of snowshoes, but I found no great difficulty in making my way to part of the river where one of my Oozles lived. I found him at home, busy about his breakfast, apparently unaware of anything uncomfortable in the weather. Presently, he flew out to a stone against which the icy current was beating. And turning his back to the wind, sang as delightfully as a lark in springtime. After spending an hour or two with my favourite, I made my way across the valley, boring and wallowing through the loose snow, to learn as much as possible about the way the other birds were spending their time. In winter, one can always find them, because they are restricted to the north side of the valley, especially the Indian canyon groves, which from their peculiar exposure are the warmest. I found most of the robins cowering on the lee side of the larger branches of the trees, where the snow could not fall on them, while two or three of the more venturesome were making desperate efforts to get to the mistletoe berries by clinging to the underside of the snow-crowned masses, back downward, something like woodpeckers. Every now and then, some of the loose snow was dislodged and sifted down on the hungry birds, sending them screaming back to their companions in the grove, shivering and muttering like cold hungry children. Some of the sparrows were busy scratching and pecking at the feet of the larger trees where the snow had been shed off, gleaning seeds and benumbed insects, joined now and then by a robin wearing his unsuccessful efforts to get the snow-covered mistletoe berries. The brave woodpeckers were clinging to the snowless sides of the larger bowls, and overarching branches of the camp trees, making short flights from side to side of the grove, pecking now and then at the acorns they had stored in the bark and chattering aimlessly as if unable to keep still, evidently putting in the time in a very dull way. The hardy nut hatchers were threading the open furrows of the bark in their usual industrious manner, and uttering their quaint notes, giving no evidence of distress. The Stella's jay were, of course, making more noise and stir than all the other birds combined, ever coming and going with loud bluster, screaming as if each had a lump of melting sludge in his throat, and taking good care to improve every opportunity afforded by the darkness and confusion of the storm to steal from the acorn stores of the woodpeckers. One of the golden eagles made an impressive picture as he stood bolt upright on the top of a tall pine stump, breathing the storm, with his back to the wind and a tuft of snow piled on his broad shoulders, a moment of passive endurance. Thus, Every storm-bound bird seemed more or less uncomfortable, if not in distress. The storm was reflected in every gesture, and no one cheerful note, not to say song, came from a single bill. Their cowering, joyless endurance offered striking contrast to the spontaneous, irrepressible gladness of the usual who could no more help giving out sweet song than a rose sweet fragrance. He must sing, though the heavens fall. The South Dome With the exception of a few spires and pinnacles, the South Dome is the only rock about the valley that is strictly inaccessible without artificial means, and its inaccessibility is expressed in severe terms. Nevertheless, many a mountaineer, gazing admiringly, tried hard to invent a way to the top of its noble crown, all in vain, until the year 1875, George Anderson, an indomitable Scotsman, undertook the adventure. The side facing Tanaya Canyon is an absolute vertical precipice from the summit to a depth of about 1,600 feet, and on the opposite side it is nearly vertical for about as great a depth. The southwest side presents a very steep and finely drawn curve from the top down to a thousand feet or more, while on the northeast, where it is united with the cloud's rest ridge, one may easily reach a point called the Saddle, about several hundred feet above the summit. From the Saddle, the dome rises in a graceful curve a few degrees too steep for unaided climbing. Besides being defended by overleaning ends of concentric dome layers of the granite, A year or two before Anderson gained the summit, John Conway, the master trail builder of the valley, and his little sons, who climbed smooth rocks like lizards, made a bold effort to reach the top by climbing barefooted up the grand curve with a rope which they fastened at irregular intervals by means of eye bolts driven into joints of the rock. But finding that the upper part would require laborious drilling, they abandoned the attempt, glad to escape from the dangerous position they had reached, some 300 feet above the saddle. Anderson began with Conway's old rope, which had been left in place, and resolutely drilled his way to the top, inserting eye bolts five to six feet apart, And making his rope fast to each in succession, resting his feet on the last bolt while he drilled anew for the next above. Occasionally, some irregularity in the curve or slight foothold would enable him to climb a few feet without a rope, which he would pass and begin drilling again, and thus the whole work was accomplished in a few days. From this slender beginning, he proposed to construct a substantial stairway, which he hoped to complete in time for the next year's travel. But while busy getting out timber for his stairway, and dreaming of the wealth he hoped to gain from tolls, he was taken sick and died all alone in his little cabin. On the 10th of November, after returning from a visit to Mount Shasta, a month or two after Anderson had gained the summit, I made haste to the dome, not only for the pleasure of climbing, but to see what I might learn. The first winter storm clouds had blossomed, and the mountains and all the high points about the valley were mantled in fresh snow. I was, therefore, a little apprehensive of danger from the slipperiness of the rope and the rock. Anderson himself tried to prevent me from making the attempt, refusing to believe that anyone could climb his rope in the now muffled condition in which it was then. Moreover, the sky was overcast and solemn snow clouds began to curl around the summit, and my late experiences on the icy Shasta came to mind. But reflecting that I had matches in my pocket, and that a little firewood might be found, I concluded that in case of a storm the night could be spent on the dome without suffering any worth minding, no matter what the clouds might bring forth. I therefore pushed on and gained the top. It was one of those brooding, changeful days that came between summer and winter, when the leaf colours have grown dim And the clouds come and go among the cliffs, like living creatures looking for work. Now hovering aloft, now caressing rugged rock brows with great gentleness, or wandering afar over the tops of forests, touching the spires of fir and pine with their soft silken fringes, as if trying to tell the glad news of the coming snow. The first view was perfectly glorious. A massive cloud of pure pearl luster, apparently as fixed and calm as the meadow and groves in the shadow beneath it, was arched across the valley from wall to wall, one end resting on the grand abundment of El Capitan, the other on Cathedral Rock. A little later, as I stood on the tremendous verge Overlooking Mirror Lake A flock of smaller clouds White as snow Came from the north Trailing their downy skirts Over the dark forest And entering the valley With solemn godlike gestures Through Indian Canyon And over the north dome And royal arches Moving swiftly Yet with majestic deliberation On they came nearer and nearer, gathering and messing beneath my feet and filling the Tanaya Canyon. Then, the sun shone free, lighting the pearly grey surface of the clouds like sea and making it glow. Gazing, admiring, I was startled to see for the first time the rare optical phenomenon of the spectre of Brocken. My shadow, clearly outlined about half a mile long, lay upon this glorious white surface with startling effect. I walked back and forth, waving my arms, and struck all sorts of attitudes to see every slightest movement enormously exaggerated. Considering that I have looked down so many times from mountain tops on seas of all sorts of clouds, it seemed strange that I should have seen the brocken spectre only this once. A grander surface and a grander standpoint, however, could hardly have been found in all the Sierra. After this grand show, the cloud sea rose higher, wreathing the dome, and for a short time submerging it, making darkness like night, and I began to think of looking for a campground in a cluster of dwarf pines. But soon the sun shone free again, the clouds, sinking lower and lower, gradually vanished, leaving the valley with its Indian summer colours apparently refreshed, while to the eastward the summer peaks, clad in new snow, towered along the horizon in glorious array. Though apparently it is perfectly bald, there are four clumps of pines growing on the summit, representing three species, Pinus albicaulis, P. contorta, and P. ponderosa Jeffrey, all three of course, repressed and storm-beaten. The alpine spiraea grows here also and blossoms profusely with potentilla, erigeron, erigonum, pentstemon, solidago, and interesting species of onion, and four or five species of grasses and sedges. None of these differ in any respect from those of other summits of the same height, excepting the curious little, narrow-leaved, waxen-bulbed onion, which I had not seen elsewhere, Notwithstanding, the enthusiastic eagerness of tourists to reach the crown of the Dome, the views of the valley from this lofty standpoint are less striking than from many other points comparatively low, chiefly on account of the foreshortening effect produced by looking down from so great a height. The North Dome is dwarfed almost beyond recognition. The grand sculpture of the royal arches is scarcely noticeable, and the whole range of walls on both sides seems comparatively low, especially when the valley is flooded with noon sunshine, while the dome itself, the most sublime feature of all the Yosemite views, is out of sight beneath one's feet. The view of Little Yosemite Valley is very fine, though inferior to one obtained from the base of the Star King Cone but the summit landscapes towards Ritter, Lyle, Danner, Connes, and the Merced group are very effective and complete. No one has attempted to carry out Anderson's plan of making the dome accessible. For my part, I should prefer leaving it in pure wilderness, though, after all, no great damage could be done by trampling over it. The surface would be strewn with tin cans and bottles, but the winter gales would blow the rubbish away. Avalanches might strip off any sort of stairway or ladder that might be built. Blue jays and clark's crows have trodden the dome for many a day, and so have beetles and chipmunks, and Tisiak would hardly be more conquered or spoiled should man be added to her list of visitors. His louder scream and heavier scrambling would not stir a line of her countenance. When the sublime ice floods of the glacial period poured down the flank of the range over what is now Yosemite Valley, they were compelled to break through a dam of domes extending across from Mount Star King to North Dome. And as the period began to draw near a close, the shallowing ice currents were divided and the South Dome was, perhaps, the first to emerge, burnishing and shining like a mirror above the surface of the icy sea. And though it has sustained the wear and tear of the elements tens of thousands of years, it yet remains a telling monument of the action of the great glaciers that brought it to light. Its entire surface is still covered with glacial hieroglyphics whose interpretation is the reward of all who devoutly study them.